Let's dive right in. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. He's also taught about the second coming, the coming of the Son of Man as he returns in the clouds with the angels, and he's at least given some teaching on that. But he did tell that no one knows the day or hour except the Father. Remember, we spent time looking at that, saying that not even the Son knows the day or hour. That was last week's discussion. But rather than just saying nobody knows the day or hour, let's just not pay attention to it at all, he instructs just the opposite. No one knows the day or hour, so keep watch. We've seen him go through three parables on keeping watch so far. Last week we covered three parables, one where the return might be unexpected. And that's the parable of the thief in the night. We also looked at a parable where the return is sooner than expected. The wise and foolish servants or stewards. And then we looked at one where the return was later than expected. That was the parable of the ten virgins. We pick up right now, we're going to go forward, keep going in chapter 25, and we're going to look at one more parable about keeping watch. But I'd like to point something out about keeping watch. We said, especially with the parable of the foolish and the wise servants, that keeping watch was not a passive thing to do. It's also not focusing on when things are going to happen. Jesus himself has already said, not even I know the day or hour. So we do have quite a few people in our tradition who spend a lot of time looking for when this is going to be. Jesus seems to be saying, you should keep watch, but what does it mean to keep watch? And it seems like the keeping watch is focused on what we're doing while we're waiting, not on the time of when it's going to come. I want to throw up this quote by R.T. France, who's one of my favorite commentators on Matthew. He says this, Readiness is not a matter of passively waiting, but of responsible activity. And the next word is very key in tonight's parable, producing results, which the coming master can see and approve. The period of waiting was not intended to be an empty, meaningless delay, but a period of opportunity to put to good use the talents entrusted to his stewards. So if you're looking at the parable, especially tonight at the parable of the talents, it seems like there's a delay. There's a long period of time between the time that the master first entrusts us with these talents and then the time he returns. And France is making the argument that it's not just a meaningless thing or not even a random delay, but an opportunity for us to actually put to productive uses the talents he's given us. For what? For the master's purposes. In the parable of the wise steward and the unwise steward, we saw that there was a specific purpose giving. Feed the other servants. Tonight we're going to see that there's another purpose in the parable of the talents, and that is about producing return for the kingdom, specifically in this case, an example using money. So let's dive right into that for a second. Now, if you've been around me for any number of months, you'll know that the parable of the talents has got to be my favorite parable. I cite it for everything. I mean, what breakfast to eat in the morning? I'm like, well, let's work out the parable of the talents, see how they would work it out. I mean, I really believe there is so much wisdom in the teaching of the parable of the talents. You're going to see it again at the retreat. But to spare you from having to go through it over and over again, I'm going to refer you to a couple places. We exhaustively looked at the parable of the talents in our talk on stewardship, which is on our website. We also spent a lot of time looking at it during our earlier money series several years ago. And we've used it in different places. So tonight, I'd like to read through it, make a couple comments, and move 
past it because I think we've dealt with it enough times, but we should, in fairness, at least read through it and discuss it. So I'm starting in verse 14 of chapter 25 again. And there it is. Jesus is linking this. One more parable about watchfulness and the end. Again. It will be like a man on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to the other two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received the five talents went at once and put his master's money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not sown seed. Well then, you should have at least put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. In commenting on this parable, I've said repeatedly, some things we should pick up on right away. The talents do seem to talk about money, but of course they talk about anything that God has given us. So I don't think that they should be limited in any way to money. We've discussed that in the past. People receive each according to their ability. I think we could look around not only the church, but we could look around the world and realize that people have different abilities And it seems that especially here, Jesus saying to his disciples, his servants, his stewards, I will give each according to their ability. I know what you're capable of, and I know what you could produce for the kingdom, and that's what I'm going to give you. But notice it's the master who gives everything to his servants, and he expects the return. He also expects something to be done. You see that the one person he has the most trouble with is the one who did nothing. The one who hid it in the ground. And we've said he didn't lose it, he didn't spend it, but he didn't produce anything with it. And the master is very angry when we receive talents that he has given us and are unable or unwilling in this case to produce a return. I think even unable might be difficult to prove because the master knows their abilities. But this one was unwilling. The last time we looked at this parable, though, Philip brought up a very interesting point. He said, what does it really mean for the the servant with the one talent to push back and say, you're harvesting where you've not sown and you're gathering where you've not scattered. What does that mean exactly? We can kind of focus on this part of the parable for a second. You know, we could go a little too far with this parable trying to find meaning in every word in it. And there are times when Jesus seems to use parables that don't quite match up on a point-by-point basis with who he is. For example, you might look at this and say, is Jesus, by telling this parable, saying that God 
or he himself as the master harvests where he doesn't sow, that he's just going to be kind of this mean person who takes advantage of people? No, that would be pushing the parable too far. Here's an example we just ran over where it pushes a parable too far. Remember the parable of the thief? We just looked at it last week. It said it'll be, the end will be like a person. He says, and if the owner of the house had known what time the night the thief was coming, well, is God a thief? Is that, I mean, by making that analogy, do we automatically say, hey, well, Jesus said that the coming will be like a thief coming in the night. So God's a thief? It says here he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So God's going to break into your house? No, that's obviously taking the parable too far. Jesus is just making an analogy. Like if a person knew that a thief was coming, he'd be ready. So if you know that I'm coming, be ready. But I'm not a thief. That's not, that's not the connection we should make. The same is true with the parable of the talents about this one part. We see another parable that Jesus told about an unrighteous judge and a persistent widow. Does that mean that God is an unrighteous judge because Jesus told a parable about a judge who was unrighteous? No. The point he was trying to make is that be persistent even unrighteous people might yield how much more your heavenly father would yield. Okay? So in this particular case, the analogy here is to a very shrewd master, somebody who is so entrepreneurial that they're actually able to gather where they have not worked. And people debate, does that mean he's unrighteous or just shrewd? Because he's got people working for him to do the work for him. Doesn't matter. In our case, I just wanted to point it out because we kind of skipped over this I'd like to point out that just this part of the parable doesn't have to line up and say, aha, you see, I know that God's going to force himself on me, make me work and do things where he didn't even produce them. Yeah? I kind of see that the master is somebody who is maybe uh, fairly demanding, but also there's maybe a good reason for the servant to have been afraid, but he still should have done something. He may have had stumbling blocks or disabilities or some kind of hardship where he could feasibly say, well, I was legitimately afraid, so I did this. It, it makes sense what he does, but it still doesn't mean it was right. Yeah, I found one very interesting comment when researching this passage by somebody who said, and they're just kind of taken off on the passage, just trying to apply it to modern times. They said, you know, we all know people who say, if that's who God is, and I'm not for God, you know, if God is like that, then he's a mean God or whatever it is. And and, and the comment was, and it's not, you know, just somebody making a comment on this after thinking about it, was this parable seems to imply that God expects us to act right towards the master and do what the master commands, regardless of our fears, regardless of even if they were legitimate or illegitimate, regardless of our anger towards a master who might be shrewd or might even work us in a way. He's actually making maybe that point. Now, it's one person making one comment. I don't want to, you know, take that too far in interpretation. But I thought it was interesting because we all know people like that. We all know people who look at God and go, if that's who God is, then you know what? I'm not going to do anything with God. And this kind of seems to say, like, you know, God is who he is. And he is setting down a standard for his servants to do something. And then they have a choice to obey or not obey. And it does seem to come down to a matter of obedience because the master knew this person's ability. Even with one talent, he knew you were at least able to handle the one and probably double it or do something. Here he says almost sarcastically, you could have at least gotten interest. You could have done something. So there's no excuse when we do nothing in light of what the master has presented us. And that's what Jesus' point here is. Okay? He concludes this with, take the talent from him, the one who is not producing with the one, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, 
and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'd like to focus on that last line for a second, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, or just this thing. Some people, if, in talking through this parable, because I talk to people so much, they think this is a harsh penalty. Like, this guy screwed up. How come he gets what Matthew's equivalent of a final judgment? I mean, Matthew uses this weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness concept, almost the equivalent of where you're judged when you're not doing well. Some people would equate it to hell. Other people would say this is the final judgment for the unrighteous. This is what they get. Why such a harsh judgment? What about another chance? And the reason it's so harsh, it seems, is because Jesus is telling parables about the end. This is the last judgment, the accounting that comes at the end. There are no other chances. So if you've lived your life in a way where you've produced nothing of value to the master who gave you the talents, the stern warning in the parable is, at the end, when it's time to settle accounts, there will be a final judgment and you will be found lacking and sent into the outer darkness. So it's not one where, as I've heard people wrestle like, well, that seems really harsh. Yes, but it's the final judgment. We have all the chances in the world. In fact, the parable begins with after a long time, the master comes back. He's clearly given them freedom to do what they want while he's away. And he's giving them a long time to do it. When he comes back, yes, maybe unexpectedly, but most of the ends of our life will probably be unexpected too. He's going to make that accounting. Okay? Probably enough said about the parable of the talents. I've heard it enough. Let's move a little bit forward. Let's talk about sheep and goats. How about them sheep and goats? What I'd like to point out before we even begin the part about the sheep and goats is we've just gone through four parables. But as we come to Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, it seems like the parables are over. I've heard people refer to this as the parable of the sheep and goats, but I have to tell you that while he does make an analogy to sheep and goats, there's nothing about the rest of this that seems to be a parable. Remember, Jesus has been teaching about the destruction of the temple. Then he's been teaching about the coming of the Son of Man. That's the beginning of his literal teaching, meaning not in parable teaching. Then he tells four parables, and then it seems like parable time is over. In Matthew's arrangement of the text, now Jesus is going to give a direct teaching that kind of puts the other bookend on the coming of the Son of Man. So it seems like we're not in a parable anymore. Let's look at the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Let me stop there for a moment. I know that in our modern society, like we think of goats like something to do with like the devil or something, right? But... Just for backdrop purposes, Palestinian shepherds mingled their goats and sheep together. In fact, you couldn't really tell them apart because the goats and the sheep were very similar color. And they grazed together. And at the end of the day, they would separate them out and put the goats into warmer places and the sheep into slightly less warm places for the night. So they had to do this on a daily basis. This is something that people would be very familiar with if you said, right, separating sheep from goats. Especially because you had to kind of look at them close sometimes. I mean, from a, from a little bit of a distance, you couldn't tell them apart which, of course, some commentators say is kind of like what he's talking about with his disciples, 
with people who follow him. Maybe you can't tell us all apart. We'll get to that in a moment. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? I'd like to focus on one word for a second before we leave the screen, and that's the word inheritance. It will become kind of important to us as we try to figure out what Jesus is talking about in this teaching. But it seems like whatever's going on with the sheep, he's telling them to come and take their inheritance, something that they're going to inherit, not earned, but an inheritance, it appears. So just keep that word in mind as we move forward. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Sheep. Goats, good, not good. Eternal life, eternal punishment. Doesn't seem like he's setting up much of a parable. He's just teaching. So here's the question I would ask for you tonight to talk back to me. What is Jesus talking about? Does chapter 25 of Matthew teach that unless we do certain actions, we will be sent to eternal punishment? That if you do not do certain things, feed, clothe, visit, heal, all those things, you're a goat. You're going to the left. And the left is not good. Here it is again for you to look at. What do you think? Yes. I've heard it suggested, I don't know if it's viable or not, but that sometimes you have to distinguish when Jesus is speaking in hyperbole and when he's being dead serious and not exaggerating it in any way, shape, or form. But I don't really know how we're supposed to differentiate when he's exaggerating when he's not, so. Yeah, I mean, here he's making a distinction between one and the other. He's not making the classic hyperbole like, if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. Better than you should lose the eye, than send your whole body to hell. Not making that exact hyperbole, but I'll tell you that I have also heard that people say that this is potentially hyperbole. I just don't directly see it in here to the degree that he does elsewhere. I don't necessarily think this is qualifying salvation, but I do, I would find it hard to believe. Uh, it would be hard to see a believer who, who never did this, right? 
I mean, if you put it in the other side, like you never fed anyone, you never took it, you know, like, so I don't know if there's some scale here. I don't think it's that particular. I don't think it's particular enough to say, well, if you do this 40% of the time, or like, I think that's a weird way to look at it anyways, but it would be strange to think of somebody having an honest faith in Christ and never doing these things. That's the point I would like to make is just to say, I don't know if this clears up, you know, the work, works for the faith. I choose to think that this doesn't go against the things that Paul says as far as like you were saved by faith through grace. Um, but but it would be hard to see a real believer who never did it. Okay, let me just say one point about that, because a lot of people have made that similar point, and here's one of the things that pushes back a little bit. You notice that the righteous are surprised? So it's not like they intentionally went out and did something, so when he said, you did this to me, they go, right on, that's what I was supposed to do, and I did it, so give me that inheritance. They don't say that. They actually are surprised by the fact that they did whatever it is that is commended by the king. So, and by the way, so do all the people who didn't do it are also a little surprised that they didn't do it. So that kind of adds a little bit to the mix that I think we have to sort through. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, have you heard anything about maybe this isn't like a list of, I, so often I've heard it as like, this is a list of things that we should be doing as Christians. What if it's not that and it's just an extended being a person of faith, like you've been a person of faith, so you're, you get eternal life and you have, you've not, like maybe to the people who are on the left, they've heard it and not applied it, whereas the people on the right have heard it and applied it, and this is just like an example and not necessarily a list of things that people actually did. Okay, the fact that there is a little bit of a list here is intriguing because it's repeated over almost three times. This list of like, it's kind of almost like a litany of things. So some people suggested that maybe this was taken from some other type of wisdom where people are like, these are the things you'd want to do. I actually think it's taken from one of Jesus' earlier teachings. But there does seem to be this repetition, so the meaning of that is kind of up in the air. Anyone else? I mean, the, the question is, I mean, is he saying you need to do these things to become a sheep and to get into the eternal reward? And that if you don't, you're going to the eternal punishment. Yeah, you want to go ahead. To the point that it would disqualify you, I think, yes, maybe because you didn't believe. I mean, it's, I mean, there's something peculiar about the fact that we even have to have a discussion about doing these things regardless of your faith stance. You know, these are things you should do anyways. The fact that we have to be constantly reminded to do them is a problem. Um, so, like, even if there was nothing contingent on you doing this, like, say we just die and there's nothing, like, we should still do these things. The fact that there's an added bonus of an inheritance is cool, um, but it's... But what about an added judgment if you don't do them? Well, I don't want to divorce it from the concept, like, some kind of concept of salvation, per se. I just would say that if we were to just take this text, then it's seems likely that there are people who do these things who maybe they don't say they're Christian or maybe they don't say they're a follower of Christ, but nonetheless they could receive some inheritance. And if, if we're just going to look at this text, right, we're not going to bring in like Paul or anything like that, which, which we could go on and on and on about anyway, <coughs> then like, that doesn't bother me. If, if somebody deserves to be there because they did these things, they deserve to be there. And if, there's someone who says, yes, I'm a Christian, but does none of these things, then quite frankly, I, I don't really think they were a Christian. I don't think they should be there. Okay, so a Christian who does none of these things disqualified, you don't think they were a Christian at all. But let's take the first one you said. 
let's say that it's just somebody who's a Christian scientist or a Scientologist, does these things. You're saying they received the inheritance because they did these things. I'm saying that if we're just going to look at verses 31 through 46, it seems clear at least. Okay, we are going to look at this, and we're going to stay within Matthew, but can I just bring in, just as a contrast, take just John 3, 15, and 16. Or let's go back to 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So you have the symbol of Christ on the cross. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So if you were just going to lay those two side by side, you have one of them saying eternal life is in belief in the crucified, lifted up Lord. And whoever believes in him, it's about a belief system. Here, we have a totally different standard, it seems. And what I'm trying to put side by side is without even going past the Gospels, is there a contradiction here? Yes. I don't know that, you know that in that whoever believes, I mean, that is kind of an open statement in itself. He whoever, whoever believes shall not perish. You know, what if contained in that statement of belief are actions? Like there's more to it than maybe our modern idea of just acknowledge that God's there and that's it. Like maybe in believing there are, there are actions that have to go along with that. Okay, Morgan? Yeah, I think it would be worth at some point doing a really short, maybe one or two night series on belief and, and what that entails because, especially in the New Testament, when you look at who had the best theology, it's the demons. Like when you cast them out, they're the ones who proclaim these really high Christological statements and they're the ones who knew, as opposed to everyone else who's a little bit confused and a little shaky in their faith and it's like, well, what does that mean exactly? You know, so clearly belief entails some things that to the modern mindset we don't we think of two plus two equals four? If you just know this ascent to truth, then that's belief. It's like I really don't think that's biblical belief. Though. Yeah, so I don't know if just believing that just something is there. Like yes, I believe that's true, as opposed to belief to the point that you would put your life into it. But I like the comments about deeds are part of it. We're going to keep going because that seems like that might help us harmonize them. Jill. Um, it kind of also makes me think of First John four seven eight, which is saying you know God is love, and he that doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. So if you're not loving people, if you're not behaving in a loving way toward any, anyone, then I think that means you don't know God or you don't care about anyone. And we show our love to God in this, that we obey, right. right? There's that part that comes back, so there is a response on our part. Let me, let me add a little bit here. There are people out there who look at this verse and say, look, you got to do these things or you will not inherit eternal life. I mean, that's kind of what it's saying. But they've taken it to mean that in a way that in the last 20 or 30 years, one of the interpretations we've borrowed is looking at this going, hey, if you're not sending money to sponsor a child, you're not doing this. You know, that, that kind of, I mean, I've seen these verses cited over and over in that context. So let's just look at a couple of things. First of all, just a side note, I want to look at the word king real fast. It's interesting that that Jesus here is recorded as using the word king. He doesn't do it much else except in this passage in Matthew. And this should raise alarms for people listening to him. They're familiar with the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, but in their messianic ideas of the final judgment, it's God who sits on the throne. So when he's referring to himself, when the Son of Man comes, and then the king will say, and the king will say, he's saying, like, I'm the king. Again, if you're one of the people listening, they're like, we got to jot that down. That's going to be at his trial. He said he was the king. 
that's enough. He's identified himself as God. He's going down. So this is a very significant statement that we just think, oh yeah, because we sing songs that have king in them all the time. You know, we just kind of, kind of ignore the context for a moment that that's pretty significant. Also, just the whole son of man, angels, clouds, all that language is going to be, as we said, the very words that get Jesus crucified in his, at his trial. Okay, let's look at this. It seems like the key to this interpretation is understanding who are these one of least of these my brothers. You see, he says, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers, there's a specific target that he has in mind. It's not anybody and everybody. It's one of the least of these my brothers. That's who we were supposed to do it for. So this is where the interpretation comes in. Some people look at these and go, whatever you did for the least of these. Well, who are the least of these? And we use a very modern lens. It's the people who are oppressed, the people who don't have. And that's not a big leap because he's going to say, look, hungry, thirsty, stranger, needed clothing, in prison. So you think, yeah, I mean, he's telling us who the least of these are. They're connected. Well, but you've got to remember that Matthew's the one who's writing the gospel. It doesn't mean anything and everything. It does mean something. What does Matthew use this phrase for? Matthew's used this phrase before. And it was in the context of sending people out into ministry. In fact, Jesus, back in Matthew 10, as he's sending out his disciples, he uses these words. This is 32 and 33, and verses 40 and 42. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge here before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Receiving in a hospitality kind of way. Receiving the message by opening the door and letting them come in. That kind of receiving. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. These little ones, the least of these, same language, refers to the disciples. That's what Matthew means when he uses that phrase. Matthew's the author. So we don't have to go outside to think, what does this mean in other texts? Like Matthew, when he uses the least of these, and when he uses Jesus' brethren, he's referring to the disciples. He does it in other passages as well. I think it's in chapter 18, he does the same thing. So we have to bring that into the mix at least to think, let's ask, what does Matthew mean when he says, the least of these my brethren? He has a specific way of using that phrase. Jeremy. Uh, the, the same concept, though, is used also in other passages in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, so in, like in Proverbs, and it refers more generally to not just. So like, he may be borrowing something and, and in the context talking to his disciples, but it also means like it, it can refer to the poor, like it can refer to a larger group of people. In fact, it does in other places. Right, and this is where people split, right here. Because you could either look and say, I want to know what that phrase means 
to Matthew, who's writing and using this phrase a couple of times over. Or you could say, I also want to go beyond that and look at all of Scripture together, which I affirm, because you can't say you should only look at Matthew to interpret this one thing, but we should look at all of Scripture to interpret what does salvation mean. I mean, that's, that's inconsistent. But it is worth noting that when Matthew uses this phrase, he seems to have the disciples in mind. Why is that significant? Because that means that it's possible that what Jesus is referring to is what we do to those who are sent with the message. It's a peculiar phrase that he seems to pick up, and it's only repeated in the sending out during chapter 10 about the receiving people, and it's brought up again in this passage again. And I know it was probably 20 years ago, but when we were in chapter 10, I was like, look at this phrase, because it's going to come up and be very significant when we get to chapter 25, and here it is again. It seems that Jesus, in speaking to a first century Palestinian audience and not a 21st century American audience, is saying that when you receive people, you are indicating that you're going to treat them a certain way because you receive what they're bringing you, the message they're bringing. Look at all the time he takes to say, anyone who receives a prophet, receives a righteous man, they get the rewards for doing that. He's referring to specific cultural things that they did to say, if you reject the person, you would just reject them. You wouldn't let them in. And remember, Jesus in chapter 10 had something to say about that. Then dust off your sandals when they do that to you. And just keep going. Because they've rejected you, they've rejected the message, and they've rejected the one who sent you. But if they receive you, and if they bring you in, presumably they've believed the message, and they've acted accordingly to someone who would do that. That's at least what he said in chapter 10. And what I'm trying to point out is, is it possible that he's saying the same thing again in chapter 25? That maybe... This isn't just about doing these things, although it's pointed out that throughout Scripture we're supposed to do these things. These might even be the evidence that you believe. These might even be the evidence that you've understood and obeyed the Master. But if it was the sole criterion of you being sheep or goats, that would be kind of harsh. That would also be kind of inconsistent with other Scriptures. So maybe the way to put them together is to think, that if we receive the message, we would receive the messenger, we would treat them a certain way, and that would be the best indication that we've received Jesus. Yes? The only reason I can't kind of go with you there is because this is still couched in the context of some the future return. Like we're, we're still talking about final judgment. So even if we're talking about... like. I mean, I guess you could parse it out and say, well, it's talking about the final judgment, but only the disciples and those who were, you know, who did or did not receive the disciples. But that just seems too arbitrary to me at this point. I mean, I still think that given the language of the fact that we're talking about the end or we're talking about the final judgment, that if the device that's being used here is one that is understood by first century Palestinians, it's still something that might have theological significance for us today beyond that context. So we, could, we should still draw out patterns for how we should live our lives, and we might even have to be concerned about the consequences for not drawing out appropriate patterns for our lives. Okay. By the way, I don't think it's limited to the immediate 12 disciples, right? I don't even think he says that, right? It's not even here. Even Matthew, when he's sending out 
passages. It's not about the 12 only. There's times when he sends out the 70. There's times when he's sending out other groups. And I think this applies to the church as Matthew is writing. Because if you notice the things are going on, people in prison, people thirsty, people hungry, like if this applied to the disciples and the people who come after, including us, who take the gospel to the people to say, this is what the master has sent me, and this is what you are to receive, then I think it does still apply to us today. It's not just the immediate disciples. It's, and and the, the connection is that many people put their life in peril to take the message of Jesus to others. They will be thrown into prison. They will be hungry. They will be thirsty. They will be all these things. And that, so it could still apply where Jesus is saying, if you did it to those people who, are, who for all the ages continue to take the message out, you're doing it for me. Not anyone being the least of these. Just like we find somebody who's unfortunate and go, oh, you must be the least of these. Most, you'd be surprised, most commentators don't agree that the least just means anybody who's unfortunate. Yes? Well, at least uh, in my Bible, it like, goes to Proverbs 19, 17, which is, when is gracious to the poor man, bless the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deeds. So like, I think there's already an idea like that if you're gracious to the poor, you're gracious to the Lord. Yeah, one of the commentators said it this way. While this passage is consistent with Jesus' ethic and treatment of the poor and all those things on every basis, it is not meant to equate their treatment with salvation. That's just a commentator. It's not scripture. It's just somebody looking at this saying, and it goes with what you're saying. Throughout scripture, we have this high regard and high priority for those who would fit this category if we just read this without interpreting who the least of these are. You'd never go wrong saying, Lord, I spent my life feeding, clothing, and loving, and healing. And they'd say, he would never say, yeah, that was the wrong thing to do. Right? I mean, throughout Scripture, that is the right thing to do. It's what we're commanded to do. The question is, are we commanded to do it to the exclusion of our salvation if we don't do it? Yes? What I'm more confused about is this idea of, it seems too extremes, of you either do these things or you don't. And I don't see anybody that does these things or doesn't. People do them sometimes, they don't do them other times. And like realistically, like even if it's just talking about like someone who's bringing the message, I could be someone who doesn't believe this. Someone brings me the message is a total jerk and I just say, no, like I'm not gonna invite you in. Someone could bring me the message and be really nice. I say, yeah, I'm gonna invite you in, I'm gonna feed you, I'm gonna do all these things. And like, what does that mean for me? Like, I would say first, starting with the last of your comments, that that brings it into a 21st century context, which he's speaking to a first century audience. The idea of like when you bring somebody in and when you don't. Like we're looking at how do I like them? Do I not like them? I mean, they might be a jerk to them. It was like you would receive them because you yourself were deciding I'm going to receive this message from them. But your other point was really interesting that some of us have done some of these things. Like nobody's black and white, right? But I think that's one of the reasons why the least of these understanding who that is is so important because if you threw that concept out, then what you're talking about creates a bigger trouble for us. That means that anybody who's ever done something nice to somebody actually is going to receive an inheritance, which is, you know, not just any inheritance. The inheritance is eternal life, right? So we've created a whole new standard of salvation. People, with or without faith, with or without understanding what they're doing, just do nice things for some people. And they happen to trip up some of these little boxes. They checked off a few. They're in. And that makes it very difficult. So he either is being a little bit extreme, hyperbole, like there's, there's either sheep or goats and nothing in between, or it's not really about what you do. But so then you would say those things are completely irrelevant and all those things they're referring to is accepting the message and believing it? Sort of, they're not irrelevant. 
One commentator said something really interesting. He said that for a long time, this passage was an embarrassment. He used that word. I thought it was a very interesting word. It was an embarrassment to anybody who was teaching that grace by faith alone is what saves us. That this passage, they tried to ignore it for a long time. This week I was reading an article that said, when you're teaching, don't stall on debates over theology. <laughs> and I thought, there wouldn't be an exodus if we didn't stall on what's going on and try to understand it. And as I read the article, I thought of one thing I want to tell you. I don't know how long you've been around the church. I don't know how long you've had a Bible in your hands. I don't know how many times you've read Matthew. But it would be an odd thing for me to read this and not understand what it says, or at least come up with a formulation for yourself. I want you to think about this context where you're telling somebody if you believe in Jesus and you live a certain way or you, you're transformed or whatever your formula is you're talking to your friend about, about Jesus, and they come up and they go, yeah, well, I read Matthew and it says that what I got to do is just do these things. For us to just stare at them and go, uh, which is where most of us come to. And that's why I do the things we do on Sunday nights where we come and we stall on a point for a while to go, what's your answer? This isn't theoretical. It isn't. I mean, I could tell you most Every commentator I looked at said that Jesus was referring to his disciples. The least of these, my brothers, was referring to Jesus' disciples and all the people that came after them and all the people who took the message out. That's what they said. But you know what? I want to know what you're going to do with it because somebody may ask you, because you yourself may trip up over this. That's the reason we do these things. Here's what the formulation might come down to. I'll just give you the two views. You have to kind of pick how you see it. Historically, and I mean for a long, long time in the church, the historical majority view is that the least of these brothers refer to the disciples and anyone who would bring the gospel. That faith in Jesus Christ is still the standard for salvation, but it's evidenced by how one received his messengers and what they did to the messengers. Why is the evidence in how we receive them? Because that's how it worked in the first century to the people he's speaking to. The way you evidence hospitality was evidence that you believed the person and you believed the message. That's why you spend so much time in Matthew 10 talking about receive this person, receive a prophet, receive a righteous person. Our concept of hospitality is totally different. It doesn't apply. Somebody knocks on our door, we're just like, oh, I don't want to answer it, right? Their world was totally different. Receiving somebody into your home was not a small thing. You could actually live there for a while. Okay? And you see Paul going through that as he goes from place to place and he's received into communities and they believe the message. Even while he's imprisoned, they receive him and support him and send people to him. So there's a different kind of concept than we're used to. Okay? This isn't just the guy who knocks on your door and wants to talk to you about whatever religion. The minority view is more recent. I would dare say more picked out of an English Bible but definitely more driven by our, our desire to see God's people move out of their lethargic nature about the poor and others. So many preachers picked up this passage and started preaching it as a warning that if you don't act justly and you don't visit, you don't clothe, then you're going to have a bad end. And of course, you can imagine already the kind of fire and brimstone type styles that began in more recent centuries of looking at this passage, even up until the 1950s and 1960s where we had kind of a huge resurgence of people who were focusing more on doing. And it continues to this day. So it began to be interpreted more this way. The least of these, my brothers, refers to anyone and everyone who's unable to help themselves. Salvation is found or denied depending on the actions we exhibit in this life. That it might begin our life of being born again maybe begin with like that moment of faith and acceptance, but that's the beginning, as we've said, not the end of the journey.
and a life of transformation and of sanctification and of following Christ to become more like him must be evidenced by fruit that comes afterwards. Not to have this one-time event and then do nothing, as some of you pointed out. I would say that maybe it's not that the minority view is the most recent view. It's that I think most of the Protestant church kind of forgot about the whole works part of faith. Um, I mean, this is not new. I mean, if you look through the entire tradition of especially the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic tradition, they are always talking about faith and works. Faith, always. Okay. Yeah. Like, even in the, the culmination of these views, like, it doesn't really talk about, like, well, what Jesus did. Like, where did Jesus go? To who did, you know, did he minister to? Did he heal? Did he talk with? Like, who did he spend time with? Like, where did he go? And that doesn't really take that into account. Um, because, obviously, he didn't just tend to his disciples um, and tend to people outside yeah, and I don't want to wrestle against the idea that we're supposed to be doing these things. I mean, some of you are still pushing back like I'm saying we shouldn't do those things. What I'm trying to say is the reason I like the first view is because it looks throughout Matthew to find is what does Matthew mean by using that phrase. That's something I like. I'd rather use something within Matthew than going to look around other places because at least Matthew's the one who wrote it. Let's find out what Matthew meant when he used those words. That's number one. The second thing is, if you take the more recent view, you really are in a position where you're saying, I need to do certain things in order to inherit eternal life. I'm saying the first view, though, seems to say, not that he only cared about his disciples. It's actually not about caring about the disciples that's important. The only reason that the least of these my brothers referring to the disciples is important is because it, it links two concepts together. If you received the message and you acted in this way, you showed that you believed and there was evidence of your belief. And that's the reason I like that formulation. Because the two things come together and that could be read coherently and without contradiction with many other passages throughout Scripture. This week I went through the New Testament and picked out all the passages that talk about eternal life, all the passages that talk about salvation, and just laid them into a document. I was going to print them out and bring them to you tonight, but then I figured that Tiffany would berate me for cutting down trees for no reason. So if you would like this formulation, if you want this, just for you to read, just passage after passage without commentary, just all the different things that it says about different you know, eternal life or salvation, and I was going to go further and look at other passages, but just those concepts, just email me and I'll send it to you. You can just read it for yourself and see how there's so many different passages and you think, what do we do to put these together? Because even within certain authors, we have different ways that we can look at it. And that's why I kind of like that view, because it seems to harmonize and not contradict other scriptures. The second one, I think, would lead us to a place where, yes, we're totally on fire to help the people who are less fortunate in the world, but that has become the standard, it seems, for who gets in and who doesn't. And even as Philip pointed out, that could mean that you have no belief in Christ, no faith in Christ. You just do those things. I'm not prepared to accept that yet. <laughs> that's a little bit outside my reading of other scriptures in the Bible. Let's close up. Lord God, I thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word. There are people in this world who don't even have that opportunity, who do not have a copy of your scriptures. Thank you, Lord, that we have copies and PowerPoints of them. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to just meet here and to discuss these things. But Lord, this is not meant to be something that we just waste your time with. This is a talent you've invested in us. 
And in reading the parable of the talents tonight, I pray that we found, we found faithful in the way that we use your time. I pray that this is not just some obscure concept, but Lord, that we touch deep inside our own hearts to ask, what is it that you require of me, Lord? What is it that brings me closer to you, Jesus? What is it that you as the king command? What will it be that you make account with me over at the end of my life? What is it, Lord, that you look for in our words, in our actions? What is it, Lord, that you require for us to receive the inheritance, Lord, that you have prepared from the beginning of time for those who love you? Lord, what does it mean to love you? Holy Spirit, I pray that you work through our hearts to get to the place where we understand these things better, the place where we can help our friends to understand them better so that we may be found obedient in these ways. Pray this in your name. Amen.